Welcome back to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquis highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. I'm Holly Marquis, and I'm joined today by Larry Zimmerman, who is here to talk about his recent paper, Lucy Parsons, Anarchist Revolutionary. Welcome to Victory History, Larry. Thank you for joining me. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Will you start by telling me just a little about yourself and the degree you're pursuing here? Sure. I'm from a small town called Marion, Kansas, originally. I went to the Kansas Academy of Math and Science program here at Fort Hayes during high school. And then when I graduated from that, I uh, went to KU for a few years to pursue an astrophysics degree and then ended up transferring back here. And I'm currently a junior in the history program. And you wrote this paper for historical methods, correct? Yes, I did. Uh, Originally, I was planning on doing it over the Haymarket Affair, which is an event we'll get into shortly. And then you suggested that I focus it on Lucy Parsons instead. That's a really nice way of saying that I told you that Lucy Parsons would be a better subject, much more originality there. What was Lucy Parsons' early life like? We don't actually know a ton about her early life. Uh, We know for sure she was born a slave. Some people think her father may have been her owner, but that's not entirely clear. What we do know is that uh, her owner transferred their entire family to Texas uh, towards the end of the Civil War to avoid having to free them. And we also know that she was married to another slave and remained married to him for a short time after she got her freedom. They had a son together, but he died in infancy. And the next thing we know for sure about her is when she got married to Albert Parsons in Texas, who was a a former Confederate cavalry officer who had become a Republican politician. And then they had to flee Texas together due to backlash against their interracial marriage. Okay. And then they go to Chicago in the 1870s. What was Chicago like in that time? It was a pretty unpleasant place to be. Uh, Everybody was poor. Everything was dirty. There were tons of tensions between the workers and the capitalists. It was a hotbed of radical politics because of all of the uh, immigrants coming in from Europe. And generally, it was a very stressful place to be. Yeah, with all of that tension between workers and capitalists, what is the context for the labor movement and what are they concerned with in the latter part of the 19th century? The main thing that the labor movement at this time was fighting for was limits on working hours, the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week. They had a lot of other things they fought for, of course, but those were their primary concerns at this time. Uh, They fought for these mostly using strikes, marches, protests, all the classical things like that that you think of, uh, which would very often get broken up by the police, the military, or privately hired mercenary companies like the Pinkertons, uh, who would come in and often just use live ammunition to forcefully break up the strikes. That'll do it. What kind of labor are Lucy and Albert Parsons doing when they get to Chicago? Uh, Albert was uh, a newspaper printer. He had some experience with that from his time in Texas. And he actually eventually worked his way up to being the editor of his own paper. Uh, Lucy at this time was uh, working as a seamstress. And it's possible she may have even owned her own seamstress shop at one point and had a few employees. But that's kind of unclear. 
And around this time, they're newly in Chicago. Lucy reinvents herself in a way, does she not? Yeah, she did. Uh, this is when she started using the name Lucy instead of her birth name, Lucia. She also began occasionally using the last name Gonzalez at this time. Instead of Carter or instead of Parsons? Instead of Parsons. She had already quit using the name Carter. Which Interesting. Was, uh, her owner's name. That makes uh, sense. But uh, she also at this time began to deny that she had ever been a slave or even that she had any African-American descent, like ancestry. And she was pretty like ambiguously ethnic looking. So she was able to pull this off. Okay. And while they're in Chicago, they both start hanging out with immigrant socialists and eventually they become anarchists. So what does the anarchist movement at this time look like? Uh, The anarchist movement at this time was mostly seen as just a smaller subset of the uh, labor movement, although, of course, a much more radical one. It was made primarily up of small groups that were often associated with larger uh, organizations that were usually less explicitly anarchist. They were more socialist or just labor-oriented. They would um, often be in these larger organizations, rallies and marches, and occasionally organize their own smaller forms of often slightly more radical protests, such as strikes and uh, direct action and stuff like that. And where does Lucy Parsons specifically fit into anarchism here? Lucy and her husband got into anarchism through a group of friends that they made, mostly made up of German-born immigrants to Chicago Uh, who were socialists at the time, and then they just got to know them, and slowly the whole group kind of moved farther left and became anarchist. Uh, They actually became part of the leaders, kind of, of this organization called the International Working People's Association, which was uh, the largest anarchist group in the country at the time, and Chicago was the largest chapter of the IWPA. They uh, actually ran a number of newspapers themselves, even the English version of which was what Albert was and became the editor of. Okay, so it sounds like they're pretty important to the Chicago branch of anarchists. And before we get to Haymarket, tell me about the strikes that are going on leading up to the Haymarket affair. Sure. So before the Haymarket affair, the, I believe it's the largest strike in the U.S. history, but it's definitely one of the largest because it's not the absolute one. Uh, it was, uh, was organized by this group called the FOTLU, which stands for the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Union uh, of the United States and Canada. They left out that last part in the acronym. <laughs> But uh, they uh, were a very small group at first, but decided to just start calling for a nationwide general strike until uh, there was a requirement for eight-hour workdays. They, despite being so small, this got a lot of steam from other organizations pledging themselves to joining the same general strike, and eventually it would lead to over 350,000 workers going on strike across the country. So that is rather large. And you mentioned that 45,000 just in Chicago. So Yeah, the uh, Chicago was one of the hardest hit cities by the strike. 45,000 of their workers went on strike and another 45,000 to threaten to, but then ultimately ended up not because their like, uh, bosses just cowed to their demands before they could go on strike. 
the Chicago branch of this strike uh, was largely organized by that group, the IWPA. They were initially pretty hesitant to join the strike because they were an anarchist group and were for the complete abolition of capitalism versus this strike, which was just asking for an eight-hour workday, and they saw it kind of as a compromise, like with the enemy, as I'm sure how they would put it, but it, they ended up joining anyways. So what was the Haymarket riot, or as it was known then, or the Haymarket affair, as we typically call it now? So on that day of the strike, one of the strikes in Chicago was at the McCormick Company manufacturing plant, and they actually ended up hiring scabs to come in and take the place of their workers. And as these scabs showed up and started moving past the picketing workers, uh, the workers began throwing rocks at them and yelling insults and stuff like that. The police were called and a large group of them showed up and just began immediately shooting their revolvers into the crowd and beating everyone they could see with batons. Uh, this obviously made all the workers that were on strike pretty mad. Of course. And uh, a number of rallies ended up being organized as a way of protesting this. The largest of these was in uh, Haymarket Square and was organized by the IWPA. At that rally, towards the end of it, it was... Every like source I found marked that it was a remarkably boring rally before this happened. Yes. But once the police showed up, they started arguing with um, the people that were putting on the rally. Uh, Albert Parsons was one of them and uh, Albert Spies, who was another friend of theirs. And uh, they were arguing that they needed to leave immediately when they wanted to finish the rally because they had like one more speech planned, I think. As they were standing there arguing, someone from the crowd threw a bomb at the police, which blew up, killed uh, quite a few police. Uh, I think it was seven of police and four bystanders that ended up dying in total. Uh, the, and then, of course, once the bomb went off, the police did their thing and started shooting and beating everybody. And everyone ended up you know, scattered. And it was kind of hard for everyone to figure out what happened at first. There were lots of rumors going around. Uh, but ultimately, eight people would end up being arrested. Uh, Lucy's husband, Albert, being one of them, and several other high-ranking members of the IWPA. And all eight of the people were prominent anarchists in Chicago. And seven of them are immigrants. And, and so yeah. there's a lot of of anti-anarchism, anti-immigrant sentiment, a lot of that going on. But when you hear about Haymarket, Lucy Parsons doesn't often come up, but she has a role here in defending what becomes known as the Haymarket martyr. So what is her role in all of this? So Lucy kind of acted as their voice to the public. While they were still in jail and on trial, she gave lots of interviews with papers and stuff defending them and uh, just generally tried to, you know, spread the word that they were innocent. But the public had already kind of made up its mind that they were guilty. And four of them ended up getting hung. Uh, one of them would commit suicide on his way to death row. And then the other three would be sentenced to life in prison. They would later be uh, released when the governor pardoned them because it was pretty much decided that they were innocent. But at this time, uh, Lucy was kind of one of the main voices trying to 
show that they were innocent. She even uh, ended up publishing a book containing all of their last letters from death row before they got uh, executed and containing the testimonies of the rest. of them. Which is one of the reasons why I said, hey, you should write about Lucy Parsons, because <laughs> she did a lot of writing, which means primary source material for your paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that she does in this writing is she's pointing out how unfair the trial was. So what sort of evidence is she using to point out what was unfair about this trial? She pointed this out in lots of ways. One of the um, pieces of evidence that she used that I found most compelling was Chicago, uh, capitalists in Chicago had, in the years prior to the Haymarket Affair, been donating literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to the police in Chicago, often with the, ex- like, not even kind of trying to hide that it was specifically donated so that they would go and hunt out the Reds, as they were off, would often be called them at the time. But Reds at this time more generally meant anarchists than communists as a whole. Okay. She, in her writing, uh, becomes increasingly violent and radical, and, and she even has a signature phrase. Can you illuminate us about that? Yeah. Uh, after her husband gets executed, she did generally become much more violent uh, in her writings than she was before. Uh, I actually um, wrote down a quote here that I thought showed that. Uh, let every dirty tramp, lou- or let every dirty, lousy tramp arm himself with a revolver or a knife and lay in wait on the steps of the palaces of the rich, and stab or shoot the owners as they come out. Let us kill them without mercy, and let it be a war of extermination. She is not mincing any words here. No, she was very open in her calls for violence. She even, that signature phrase that you mentioned, she would end most of her writings with the phrase, learn the use of explosives. Which is a fantastic way to end a letter and was really a fun discovery. I remember when you came to class and told me this is how she signed her letter. So it makes me rethink some of my, of course, I would never sign a letter like that, but I think I need a signature phrase. Yeah. So she's com- committed to anarchism and that comes out in the story of her son, unfortunately. What happens to him? So that's like probably one of the darkest, other than all the calls for murder, that's probably the darkest <laughs> thing that I know of that she actually did. Um, she, Her son, when he was 19, wanted to join the army. Uh, her and Albert disagreed. I believe Albert was still alive at this time. I may be incorrect. Uh, but they dis- she disagreed with this uh, because she didn't want him working for the government. She saw that as the same as working for the capitalists and was not a thing she agreed with. So she actually went to a judge and managed to somehow convince the judge to declare him as insane and place him in an asylum where he would stay until his death. And she, as far as I know, didn't visit him a single time. Well, it's just getting worse. I didn't even know that. Yeah. and <laughs> Just left him there to Just die. kind of abandoned him there. He was abused by the guards a bunch, apparently. Oh, no. Yeah. And then he got tuberculosis, I believe it was. I remember when I first read that in your rough draft, I my first thought was maybe she put him there because she was worried that he would get hurt in combat, but no. No, it was just <laughs> that she didn't approve of it. Did she have any other children with Albert? Yeah, she did. Uh, they had a daughter named Lulu who uh, died of some disease when she was eight. Lots of tragedy in her life. Yeah. 
in your research process. I remember very clearly you coming to class, being excited that you actually found a Kansas connection here. So tell me about that article from Iola, Kansas. Yeah, I uh, found this article from the Iola Register from sometime in the 1880s that was talking about a uh, local woman named Mrs. Emery who had been advocating for anarchism and uh, several other political movements at the time. And it was pretty much talking, saying how scared every the entire public should be of this lady. Um, and the way it was saying that they should be scared of her was by comparing her to Lucy Parsons. I actually uh, wrote down a quote from that too. Um, they advocate the same things, the same, quote, reforms. Lucy Parsons would use dynamite. Mrs. Emery prefers the bayonet. <laughs> Lucy Parsons would use the torch. Mrs. Emery prefers gunpowder and shot. So I think that sets you up for another research project to look into this Mrs. Emery from Iola and find out what happened to her or what happened to everyone she was around is probably the better historical question. Uh, in your paper, you write that about the threat that Parsons represented in her writings, which was the threat of change. And this becomes terrifying for people. What perceived threat did she pose? The threat that she posed was pretty much like the threat of change because she was a strong, steadfast, black anarchist woman touring the country advocating for an armed revolt against the ruling capitalist system, which is pretty much the scariest thing the people <laughs> at this time could have think of because it's the greatest possible upheaval to the system that was in place. She ticks a lot of boxes. There. Yeah, pretty much all. <laughs> and you said that the Chicago police even called her more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Yes, that was, um, I, I had trouble tracking down the actual original article that that came from, but it's, in all of the secondary sources. And I think I may have found it, but it was like behind a paywall. So I'm not <laughs> sure about that. I'm pretty sure they I'm said fairly it. certain that's an actual thing they said. Even long after Haymarket, she stays involved in the labor movement. She even becomes a founding member of the IWW or Wobblies, right? Yes, she does. Uh, she actually stayed an active member of the labor movement until her death at 91 years old. Uh, she even led a march just a couple weeks before her death, which is, I believe, where that quote I read earlier about wanting the tramps to hide on the porches of the rich people comes from. When she's 91, she's she saying says, to hide yes. on the porches. Of the <laughs> so she is just full of fire through her whole life. She is also fighting for unemployment rights. So she's got a wide variety of reforms, you know, in addition to the violence. Yeah. The, uh, the, as part of her work with uh, the IWW, which um, is the International Workers of the World, uh, she uh, was a founding member of this and was one of their leaders for the first few years. And she led uh, the push for unemployment rights with them and held a, uh, March with 10,000 people attending it in, I believe it was San Francisco. It was one of the towns in California. And shortly after that March was when the first California unemployment rights were passed. So she was pretty successful in that. And how did she ultimately die? She uh, died ultimately in a house fire. Husband, lover, they were they got together not a couple years after uh, Albert died, but because of anti-miscegenation laws that had been passed since 
they weren't able to ever actually get married. Okay. But uh, her husband, that third husband, uh, George Markstall, I believe was his name. Uh, he was actually also an activist. They did a lot together. And he actually got arrested at one point for plotting to kill Woodrow Wilson. Wow. Uh, but ended up being released because there was no evidence that he was doing that. And I don't think he actually was. Hmm. But he ended up dying in that fire with her as well. So again, another person you could research. So Lucy Parsons, much more influential than most people realize. Why is that? Why do we know less about Lucy Parsons than some of her contemporaries? I think it's largely due to the sexism of the time and the time since. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people both during her life and historians since have dismissed her as simply being famous due to her husband being a martyr and her not actually being that important of a figure herself. And her writings and stuff are often completely overlooked. Uh, the I think uh, strong evidence of this is mostly due to sexism is the fact that there's only other, one other really famous anarchist uh, woman from this time who is Emma Goldman. Mm-hmm. Emma Goldman, of course, is much better remembered than Lucy Parsons, uh, which I think it may, may be due to racism. I think you definitely can't right. deny that aspect of it. But I think a large part of why Emma Goldman might be better remembered is because uh, she was a pioneer of feminist schools of thought which uh, Lucy wasn't really focused on feminism at all. So her work with feminism is really, I think, how Emma Goldman has been remembered, and then much less than if she had only talked about anarchism like Lucy Parsons did. Right. So what was your biggest takeaway in this process? Uh, I I learned a lot about how to conduct historical research. I'd never really done any big historical research projects like this before, and it was really good to, you know, get that experience at doing that. I also, of course, learned a ton about this time period and the labor movement in the U.S. in general, which I didn't know a ton about before. And what sources did you find that were most useful? Uh, So the most helpful secondary source that I found was this book called The Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical, uh, written by Jacqueline Jones. And then my most helpful primary source was Freedom, Equality, and Solidarity, Writings and Speeches, 1878 to 1937, which is just a republishing of a bunch of Lucy's essays and other writings. It makes your paper writing so much easier when you have a collection of primary sources just right at your fingertips. Yes. Was there anything that you found that you ended up having to leave out of this paper? Yeah, there was uh, a lot. She she got up to a lot in her life. One thing that I think it would have been uh, very cool to talk about more was the times that she got arrested. She got arrested quite a few times throughout her life. but I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. No, often the police would just be like waiting for her when she showed up right. somewhere. Uh, but the very first time she ever got arrested was uh, she was in Columbus, Ohio to give a speech And she went to the city hall to, like, get her speaking hall that they'd reserved. And they told her that they'd been revoked because they weren't going to let an anarchist speak in their city. And uh, I wrote down the exact quote she said to the guy. She said, if you understand anarchy to mean violence and disorder, then you, sir, are the only anarchist I know of in Columbus just now. That's awesome. (laughs) And then after saying that, she just tried to leave. And the guy uh, ordered a police officer to chase her down and arrest her. Police officer does, but she manages to talk the police officer into letting her go and talk to the mayor first. 
So this stabby lady that's like, we should blow up the rich people. <laughs> Definitely put her in front of the mayor. Yeah, they just, she just managed to talk them into it somehow. <laughs> um, then she argues with the mayor for a while before he orders her to be arrested too. Uh, she then gets thrown in this jail. She has a really interesting description of what the jail looked like. But, um, and after a few hours in prison, she... I'm pretty sure bailed herself out with a watch, but it almost kind of sounds like she might have bribed her way out, but I don't think she did. <laughs> Bailing out, bribing out. But the, uh, and then she ends up going to her uh, trial the next, her hearing to like give her her official bail and everything. And uh, that same mayor that got her arrested has just decided he's going to serve as the judge for the case, too. Oh, that sounds reasonable. Which is apparently a thing he can do. (laughs) Um, And he orders her to go back to prison and gives her a super high bond and everything. And so her lawyers ended up threatening to sue the city and getting her bail released. And then... Uh, she actually wrote an article. That's how I know all this. She wrote an article in a, an anarchist paper, gave her side of the story, and she was very, very offended in it that all the other newspapers talking about it at the time had said that she had insulted the mayor when she had not. She had only insulted this other guy that she had <laughs> talked to first. She hadn't actually insulted the mayor at all. She's like, get and it she right. was very specific <laughs> that they needed to get that right. I kind of love her. Larry, I appreciate you chatting with me today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We will post the selected bibliography of sources for those who want to learn more about Lucy Parsons at our website, victoryhistory.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-E history.com. You can subscribe by email to get notifications so you never miss an episode. And you can find our podcast on all of the major podcast platforms.